0: Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis.
1: The confirmation process for Justice Brett Kavanaugh captivated the country. The stakes were high and the drama even more so. And some are now saying that perhaps the confirmation process is forever changed. But what got us here, and how will this look in the future?
2: I'm Maria Sakalis, And I'm Jessica Saccone. Today we are joined by adjunct professor Greg Willard. Greg served as a White House staff assistant and personal aide to President Gerald R. Ford. He teaches a seminar on American presidency and presidential power. Thank you for joining us today, Greg.
0: Delighted to be with both of you.
2: So those are some impressive credentials. Um, Tell us about your relationship (laughs) with President Ford in the White House and the the decades that came after his presidency.
0: It was a a wonderful relationship that lasted, uh, goodness, over 30 years. As you said, Jessica, I worked in the White House for the president. After he lost the election in 1976 to then-Governor Carter, uh, President Ford asked me if I would move to California with him and Mrs. Ford. Uh, And I did and served as his personal aide and in the subsequent years maintained the friendship uh, with the Fords Uh, And in later years he asked me to uh, plan and then uh, eventually I had to conduct uh, The nation's farewell his state funeral service. Mm -hmm. So it was a a wonderful relationship He and Mrs. Ford were were um, just terrific people to work with and for I always go back. There was a wonderful comment, and I think it's it's uh, in today's political comment uh, <coughs> political climate, it's particularly appropriate. David Broder once wrote, um, "The truth has begun to dawn on the American people that Gerald Ford was the kind of president Americans always wanted and didn't know they had." Mm-hmm. And I I uh, would echo those comments as one who uh, served him in the White House.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What insight did that experience give you as far as what the president, who the president is, what the president does, and what their role really looks like for the nation?
0: I think, Maria, it it gives you sort of a a panoply of perspectives, especially depending on uh, what your relationship in the White House was with the president. For example, in my case, I I traveled with him Mm -hmm. uh, everywhere. And and, uh, so you, you see kind of the personal side so I think uh, depending on uh, the topic at hand, uh, that, that experience is phenomenally relevant or maybe marginally relevant. Last week, for example, we were talking in my class here at Slough Law School about uh, the, the uh, nuclear football, uh, the nuclear codes mm-hmm. that the president carries. And so I was able to uh, share with the uh, student how the presidential biscuit works and uh at least how it worked in 1970s i assume it's mm-hmm. pretty i, much I don't know
2: what a presidential biscuit is. presidential
0: biscuit is part of the codes <laughs> okay. jessica that if god forbid the president were ever, ever to have to order the launch of a nuclear attack mm-hmm. uh, with him as a military aide, he has the black box with the codes and one of the authenticating fe- features is the president carries a code card that is referred to as the biscuit. Okay, okay. So uh, as to your question, Maria, having some familiarity, I certainly didn't carry the nuclear codes, but having some familiarity and <laughs> being around them every day, um, it was very helpful to sort of give that real world perspective mm-hmm. to my students here at Salu Law School as to uh, how that part of the presidency works on a real-time, 24-7 basis, mm-hmm. even today. Mm-hmm.
1: Jumping forward to today, can you take us through that basic process in the Constitution for the nomination and confirmation of a Supreme Court justice?
0: I can, and for our non-lawyer or non-law student listeners, if even if they I go guess. back to their 8th grade <laughs> civics class, they will be reminded that it is one of the most powerful powers uh, and ominous powers in the constitution but also among its simplest and the the power is embodied in article two of the constitution and it says in effect that the president shall have the power to nominate and with the advice and consent of the senate appoint Mm -hmm. so if you think of it on a scale The president has a plenary power to nominate, but that's it. The Senate has an equally plenary power to decide whether to consent. Mm -hmm. Or the the common phrase is confirm, and that's why we have Mm -hmm. confirmation hearings. So what has gotten lost, and we can talk about this uh, this afternoon in more detail, what has gotten lost in recent years is that the plenary nature of the Senate's power has uh, tended to go into the ash heap of history and the Senate has tended to be historically very deferential to presidents. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if they were to, they, the senators, were to go and dust off their copy of the Constitution or more specifically Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention, they would see that it was uh, anticipated by the framers that that advice and consent power was on par with the president's nomination power such that if the senate does not consent as uh, the uh, president found out with say robert bork in the mid 80s if the president does not if the senate does not consent then the president can't exercise his residual appointment power so the president nominates and then it's 100% up to the senate as mm-hmm. to whether it goes the next step.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have there been many um, cases where, and I forgive me for not knowing, um, that the Senate does not confirm that appoint, that appointment?
0: There before? have. They, I wouldn't I wouldn't call them uh, widespread, Jessica, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, President George Washington. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> but uh, President George Washington nominated uh, John Rutledge to the Supreme Court and the Senate rejected that. Hmm. And it rejected the nomination on the basis not of Rutledge's qualifications or lack of qualifications. It's because Rutledge, uh, his position on the Jay Treaty, and it was because of Rutledge's position on the Jay Treaty that the Senate uh, failed to confirm, refused to confirm, or dare we say, with Respect to President Washington, rebuked mm-hmm. George Washington's nomination of Mr. Rutledge, mm-hmm. and he did not take the bench. But it, if you look at sort of a, a 200 and whatever it's been, Jessica, 40 year mm-hmm. uh, timeline, the uh, vast majority of Supreme Court nominees have been eventually right. confirmed by the Senate and thereafter appointed mm-hmm. by the President.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's some really fascinating historical context that I'm not sure everyone knows about. Um, Fast forward to modern day, can you talk about what precedents have changed recently in the past 20 or so years as far as how the Senate handles those Supreme Court nominations?
0: What has changed probably most significantly, Maria, is the the amount of I'll use the phrase partisan considerations, ideological considerations that have, have come to the fore in the last, oh say, 70 years. There was a very uh, unfortunate situation in 1916 with the nomination by President Wilson of Louis Brandeis and because of his religious faith Uh, He was uh, significantly grilled, and it was a very difficult confirmation proceeding, but ultimately he he was appointed, confirmed and appointed, and went on to be one of our most distinguished justices. But in the intervening decades, we didn't see much of that. Mm -hmm. Then in the 1960s, it began to seep back in with uh, the nomination of Justice Harlan, the nomination of Justice Thurgood Marshall, and we saw some very unfortunate attempts uh, by uh, senators primarily from southern states to raise issues uh, as to the senator the nominee rather his particular views on uh, particular issues uh, of interest to the southern se- senators especially brown versus the board of education mm-hmm. Uh, So what then has happened in the subsequent uh, decades is there has been this, uh, some would say, silly dance between the senators and the nominees, and the senators will press the nominees to reveal ideological views or views on specific cases, Roe v. Wade, for example, Mm -hmm. Citizens United on political contributions, Uh, and the nominees, in turn, Uh, go through this dance where they try to give some general uh, comments about their views but not be seen to Mm prejudge cases that might come before the court. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously said at her confirmation hearings in 1996, no forecasts and no hints as to how she might rule, And, Mm -hmm. and that's been used subsequently. What we what we find ourselves in in today is a situation where the process has become so uh, politicized
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so partisan that uh, I fear we're we're on the verge of doing some some very serious and perhaps irreparable damage to the court um, as a result of what goes on in this confirmation process to be blunt I think the Confirmation process for Supreme Court justice is justices is badly broken. Mm-hmm. And somebody, hopefully the senators, but somebody needs to save the United States Senate from the way the United States senators are comporting themselves in these confirmation hearings. Mm-hmm.
2: So you just mentioned actually partisan politics on both sides kind of clearly playing a part um, in this confirmation, and consumed a lot of the 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 stories on on both sides. How is this different from Supreme Court nominations, um, previous ones? And then also, like how we've we've heard a lot about. you know, We're closing in on the midterms. We've heard a lot about how this process has somehow kind of moved the needle on that too. Can you talk about how the those partisan politics have played, and we'll look forward. To the well, future? the
0: the the Senate, Jessica historically has been the the deliberative body the the framers of the Constitution viewed it as the saucer with the cup of coffee and the cup being the United States House of Representatives that would be subject to election every two years but the Senate every six so it was thought to be a more deliberative uh, body a more thoughtful body perhaps Mm -hmm. at the core of that institutional uh, identity, was the filibuster. And for many years, uh, a, a matter could not be brought to a vote if a senator wanted to filibuster that matter mm-hmm. unless two-thirds of the senators voted for cloture mm-hmm. to stop the filibuster. That was subsequently lowered to 60, three-fifths. Well, that applied in the case of Supreme Court nominations. And so what you had uh, up until just a few years ago, is uh, you had a situation where when a president would nominate a person to serve on the Supreme Court, implicit in that was that that person would be able to get at least two-thirds, or in more recent years, three-fifths of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And that normally would require at least some votes from the minority party. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what happened in uh, the Obama administration is that with respect to district court judges and court of appeals judges, that filibusters were beginning to ensue by the Republicans. Then-majority leader Harry Reid exercised what came to be known as the nuclear option and, in effect, destroyed the filibuster Mm -hmm. as to district court and... court of appeals nominees well then last year president trump nominated neil gorsuch Mm -hmm. and the democrats didn't like that because they were bitterly angry that that seat on the supreme court of justice scalia's they believe should have been president obama's pick with judge merrick garland Mm -hmm. and the republican majority refused to even hear it So when Gorsuch was nominated for that seat, the Democrats were prepared to filibuster. Majority leader Mitch McConnell then exercised the remaining vestiges of the nuclear option and the filibuster rule as to Supreme Court nominees and the Republicans blew up the filibuster rule as to Supreme Court nominees. Mm -hmm. So we now find ourselves today as we just saw last month, where it doesn't take 60 senators to have a nomination proceed. It only takes a majority. Mm -hmm. And so if you remember the final hours of the confirmation process for Kavanaugh, there was a cloture vote
2: Mm -hmm.
0: to stop debate, and the nuclear option was exercised. Debate was stopped. And the final vote was 50 to 48, a far cry from 60 that otherwise would have been required. Right.
2: Right. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes a difference.
1: So besides the filibuster and the nuclear option being used, are there other parts of this process that have been permanently changed, do you think, as a result of Justice Kavanaugh's nomination?
0: I think there there may be some that have been permanently changed but i think what we witnessed with the kavanaugh confirmation hearings was a replay of the thomas confirmation hearings and to an extent the bork confirmation hearings and if something is not done to fix that we are going to face two things. One, as you say, Maria, a, a permanent change in the, in the manner by which confirmation hearings are conducted. But more disturbing, we're, we're going to see a continued erosion of the confidence of the American people in the Supreme Court. And to be blunt, we as a, a body politic, we as the American people cannot let that happen. So, for example, you have the, the Democrats are just absolutely uh, outraged that the supplemental investigation of Dr. Ford and Ms. Ramirez's allegations was not more fulsomely carried out. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans, on the other hand, are outraged at the mobs and the mayhem in the Senate galleries and, and in restaurants in Washington and the like Uh, Well, uh, then they have a choice, they being the United States Senate. They can allow this to continue, and trust me, it is going to continue no matter which side is in the majority or the minority Mm -hmm. in the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. It's just like on the kids' playground, Maria, you know, (laughs) na, 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 (laughs) na. Sally did this and Timmy did that, so we're going to do it the next time. But it is up to the 100 senators in the United States Senate, to figure out how they are going to deal with allegations similar to Dr. Ford's in the future. Mm -hmm. And it is not a question of providing due process rights to the nominees or some type of fairness rights. But for goodness sakes, if we didn't learn anything from how Dr. Ford was treated, how Anita Hill was treated... The United States Senator has Senate has got to come up with a better way to protect those participants in mm-hmm. the confirmation system. They they woefully failed Judge Kavanaugh and his family. Goodness sakes! But to suggest that they did not also woefully fail Dr. Ford and her family and her career, it's silly to deny that they did. Mm-hmm. And and I put I put the the blame. And the go-forward responsibility squarely at the feet of those 100 senators. Mm-hmm. They have to fix it.
2: So going forward, how how does the court kind of adjust from this? We I heard something recently that um, Chief Justice Roberts put out a statement, kind of reiterating the independence of the court and. Uh, Ginsburg and I think Sotomayor might have said something as well how do they kind of recover and and get back that independence after this really partisan um, well I think
0: it's I think it's important Jessica to recognize that it is not lost mm-hmm. it has been smudged mm-hmm. to his credit uh, Chief Justice Roberts I think it was up at the University of Minnesota mm-hmm. yep. uh, recently engaged in a in a conversation there at the law school and and went out of his way to talk about the importance of the public confidence in the court and the work of the court and as you say Justice Ginsburg Justice Sotomayor did likewise and and my guess is the other five justices at one one time or another will do the same thing we are fortunate to have John Roberts as the chief justice today Mm -hmm. and the And the reason for that is that he has an extraordinary devotion and commitment to the institution of the Supreme Court and its place in our federal system and its place as one of the three branches of the federal government. And I think what you see it in his writings, you see it in his speaking, you see it in some of the jurisprudence that he has participated in, the Affordable Care Act decision several years ago, in that he is is extraordinarily focused and protective on the institution of the Supreme Court, and I think we see that philosophy emulated quite appropriately by his fellow justices, and I think eventually we'll see it emulated by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. But uh, that notwithstanding, Um, the participants, both the President and the Senate, in the nomination, confirmation, and appointment process, they ought to comport themselves with the similar dignity that the Chief Justice and Mm -hmm. Justice Sotomayor and Ginsburg and others have comported themselves. Um, The job of a Supreme Court justice, Jessica, is difficult enough. Mm -hmm. It need not be made more difficult by by political zaniness and gamesmanship of the United States Senate and the president. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Greg.
0: Glad to be with you.
1: And tune in next time for the next episode of SLU Law Summations.
0: Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.